When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for yet another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. I dare you. I dare you to try something a bit different in your aquarium work, to take a bit of a risk, to play a hunch, to employ or create a technique that others might consider, you know, reckless, radical, or utterly unconventional at the least, to embrace aesthetics, which plays function at the forefront. Why? Why would you do this? To be a pain in the ass? To poke the beehive of mainstream aquarium culture? Well, of, of course not. However, you likely will. It's just what happens when you try something different. You know, people get defensive, they get indignant, even self-righteous. It's far easier to criticize the idea of others than to come up with your own. It's always been that way in the aquarium hobby. It's been exacerbated in recent years with social media forums, which grant people anonymity when they can come and attack from behind their, you know, their keyboard. Now, granted, sometimes you try an idea that is truly reckless. Maybe it's doomed to fail, but you're determined to try anyway. Some people will commend you for your courage and your fortitude. Others will call you an idiot. That's the price of admission and the invigorating, or depending on how you look at it, uh, the invigorating part of forging ahead on your own path. It's lonely. It opens you up to criticism. Some of it really good. Some of it ill-informed and unwarranted. Yet all of it, everything you do is open up open you know for others to judge when you put it out there and that's not easy for a lot of people to stomach however it's how we let the criticisms and comments impact our work that counts perhaps some personal views might help you know illustrate this idea a little bit more uh, with tannin we've had rather unconventional hobby viewpoints since our founding in 2015 now as an aquarist i've had these viewpoints on the hobby for decades uh, sort of a desire to accept the history of our hobby to understand how best practices and techniques came into being while being tempered by a strong desire to question and look at things a bit differently to see if maybe there's a different or better way to accomplish stuff. I never liked shortcuts. I never spent time looking for ways to avoid water exchanges and stuff like that. Rather, my time has been occupied by looking at how nature works in the wild habitats and seeing if there's a way to replicate some of her processes in the aquarium, despite how they might look or even the results that you might get in the interim. As a result, I've learned to look at nature as she is, and I've long ago given up you know, much of my aquarium-trained sensibilities to edit or polish out stuff that I see in my tank, simply because it doesn't fit the prevailing aesthetic sensibilities of the aquarium hobby. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't care how things look. Of course not. But rather, it means that I've accepted a different aesthetic, one that, for better or worse in some people's minds, more accurately reflects what natural habitats actually look like. Okay, that was a little bit of a digression from my main theme today, but the point is that you can look at things differently, approach stuff from a you know different perspective than the prevailing thinking in the hobby, seem a bit rebellious, and even still be correct. There's no single best way to approach everything in the hobby. The only rules are those imposed by nature, which govern how ecosystems work, biology. 
When we pick and choose parts of nature's system to suit our needs, we have to accept the consequences of our decisions. So, for example, when we overstock our systems with fishes, we need to employ more robust nutrient export processes, you know, filtration, water exchanges, etc., etc., to compensate. Otherwise, waste accumulate and our fish's health is compromised. It's kind of a no-brainer, right? If we want to keep highlight-loving plants, we simply need to employ high light intensity, or we can grow less light-demanding plants. It's really simple as that. And of course, along the line when you do stuff, you're going to face criticism, sometimes warranted, often unwarranted, from other hobbyists when you try different ideas, when you push thinking, which goes against conventional aquarium hobby wisdom and practice. Some people will simply question. Others will attack. Others will have really passionate views on a subject because they're coming from a different orientation or point of view than you are, and that's perfectly understandable. Now, two people can have different views with each being correct, yet still disagree, and it can be civil. I've experienced both types over the years in the hobby, and I've gotten rather used to it because it goes with the territory. If you're experimenting with stuff in an unusual or contrarian manner and sharing it extensively with the hobby as we try to do, inevitably you're going to run up against criticisms. Now, rather than get it all pissed off, we should welcome this as an opportunity to discuss and exchange ideas, all the while receiving feedback from a different point of view. And even in the face of criticism, it's okay to be humble and civilized. It's okay to learn. And sometimes you need to be humble and really see the other person's point of view. You don't have to agree with them, but you can be empathetic to their view and interpretation of things. Sometimes it's about context and nuance or lack thereof. I had a recent example of this. It was an exchange I had with somebody um, on Instagram. I published one of those stories, an Instagram story, you know, those little ephemeral stories that pop up for 24 hours. Uh, It was kind of drilling down on that idea that botanicals can provide a supplemental, or in some instances, a primary food source for many fishes if a tank is properly configured. It's an idea we've discussed here and in our podcast and elsewhere ad nauseum. You're probably sick of me talking about it. Now, to illustrate the point in that post, I shared a small video snippet of a group of pygmy Corydoras, which resided in one of those specially configured setups. The only other context offered for this was... Uh, I don't know, the several dozen posts I put up over the years touting the same idea along with, by last count, 19 or 19 blogs and I think 21 podcast episodes where we talked about that same concept. However, the inevitable happened. Uh, a fellow hobbyist politely, you know, DM'd me, politely pointed out that it gave the impression that you can just dump a batch of pygmy quarries into a tank and never feed them. He also, in my opinion, incorrectly pointed out that they looked kind of thin, which, believe me, they did not. Um, I've been keeping fish since I was literally three years old and getting up there in years now, I know what a thin fish looks like. Trust me. Uh, when the video was shot, they had also just completed a group spawning event about 10 hours prior, which I didn't mention in the post. So maybe they weren't as rotund as they normally were, but they were hardly thin or malnourished. I think this was a case of maybe somebody wanting to see something because they really didn't like the idea. I get it. It it was a bias more than a, you know, arrogant presumption. Anyway, This guy was concerned because these fishes do have a reputation for being difficult to feed, or at the least non-competitive feeders in community settings, which is exactly, of course, why I elected to put these fishes into one of my self-feeding botanical-style aquarium systems, uh, an experimental system, by themselves. We had a little exchange where we both shared our correct viewpoints. I could see his point, and I think he was grasping mine. However, his concern was that I was just sort of tossing it out there and a somewhat reckless, or he used the word sensational manner. Was he right? Was I right? I think we both were. I mean, in the grand scheme of social media, maybe one or two of the, I think it was 1,176 people happened to see that one little story, uh, might have ignorantly made the assumption 
that there's nothing to keeping these fishes in this fashion. Tried it and killed some fishes. Now, that's one or two people too many, of course, and that sucks, and I apologize if that's what happened. On the other hand, I'm going to wager that the majority of the almost 17,000 followers of Tannen on Instagram understood the context of what was presented and saw the prior stories where we're talking about the same idea with other fishes and so forth, and that about 1,174 people didn't rush off breathless to their local fish store, purchase a group of pygmy quarries, and throw them into a tank without feeding them ever, resulting in their slow death from this obvious starvation. I mean, we've beaten the shit out of the process, the philosophies, and the methodology about this stuff for almost seven years now. Now, rather than be butthurt and overly defensive, I simply engaged him, and the conversation sort of trailed off. We both made our points, and I agree that next time I tout this idea, maybe I'd better consider the small number of people who might see my feed and, without any context, take my advice as gospel, rush off on some radical process for all the wrong reasons, lest I become one of the many content creators that I rail upon, producing shallow, vapid, misinformed content. Now, will that stop me from sharing ideas that, you know, some people seem to feel are controversial or even sensational? Well, hell no. The bottom line is that when you put ideas out there, you need to be able to explain and engage when, when you're required without the attitude. If your idea is stupid, if it's poorly thought out or simply invalid, you deserve to take a heat. And you, sometimes you'll take a beating. You're not a visionary, you're a fool, and that's a fact. But when you know your idea has merit, the criticism still comes sometimes, but it might be easier for you to deal with because you know you're right. Of course, anyone who's boldly forged a path into unknown areas of the hobby and shared them has likely taken incoming fire before. Not all of it's constructive or civil, like the episode I just shared. Some of it's brutal, sometimes it's completely undeserved, and it's downright mean. What do you do? Well, engage if it's worth it, ignore it if it's not, and just keep moving ahead and sharing the good and the bad of your ideas. Now, with the idea I was talking about there, with my self-feeding botanical-style aquarium idea, I would definitely share the stories of the fishes if they, you know, getting ill or slowly starving during the experiment, you know, I had to call it off or whatever, but there were no such stories. None. I never lost a single fish. Ever. Dumb luck or valid idea. I tend to favor the latter. My experiments were not performed in a reckless, sensationalistic manner, and they were closely watched and really not all that radical. And I repeated the process four different times with different fishes and tanks. Some of these fish is quite expensive. Same outcome each time. In fact, I had multiple spawning events with unusually expensive and rare fish. My conclusion was that if you create a carefully conceived, well-thought-out habitat, which offers lots of correct feeding opportunities for the resident fishes and nurture the habitat accordingly, there's not that many downsides to this thing. Regardless, when we push unusual ideas, stuff like this, things that not everybody in the hobby views as normal, it's to be expected that some people are going to call you out from time to time. Our interpretation of the natural habitats that you know we love so much might be extremely off-putting to some people who are not familiar with them, just like our ideas. You've heard me say this a million times before. It's like a newsflash here. What we proffer, our interpretation of nature and nature's functions, is not everyone's idea of a dreamy aquarium. Now, frankly, it puts off some people. It scares the living shit out of others. And many just don't understand. They don't read further. They don't dig down past the sensational headline or the picture. They can't get past brown, soupy water and all the good stuff that goes with it. In my humble opinion, they've been sort of programmed by the world of perfectly clean sand, bright lightings, rocks you could eat off of, and wood that on day 45 looks as sterile as it did the day you, you know, it was submerged. Oh, wait, don't those guys usually break down the tank by day 45? Ah, come on, Felman, that was mean. I know, I had to get that little one in there, but, you know, it's okay. I get it. We all get it. 
Yet, some of the adherents to some of these rigid interpretations of nature love to call me out on this for some weird reason to tamp down our ideas just a bit, I suppose. I'll get some rather nasty DMs from time to time. It's reality check, guys, though. What you do is cool. I dig it. Seriously, it's rad. Do you and keep sharing your fine work. However, stop trashing on what you don't really understand. This is the other part of criticism. You need to understand, in our case, that nature is not always clean and tidy. In, in fact, most of the time it really isn't. And if you buy into this head-scratching hobby narrative that every pristine, high-concept contest aquarium is somehow the ultimate reflection of what nature looks like, you're simply fooling yourself. You just are. Sure, there are some really clear, clean, sparkling habitats out there in the world, but they represent the exception, really. And I'll go out on a limb and suggest that none of them have tidy rolls of, rows of symmetrically trimmed, color-balanced, you know, rotala or whatever, neatly or neatly arranged rocks of related size and perfect proportion. I'm talking tough here, but I can't stress this enough. If you really want to understand the natural aquatic habitats of our fishes, some of you have to get out of the idealized aquascaping mindset for a bit and stop dissing everything that doesn't fit your idea of the way the world should be, and just accept the realities which nature presents. I'm actually surprised we still do get those DMs every once in a while pushing back on that, so I, I push back. Anyway, I'm, I'm not at all joking when I tell you that I'd take an aquarium that can faithfully replicate any of those murky, twisted, decomposing scenes above and run beautifully in form and function over any of those IAPLC Grand Champion aquariums. Like, any day of the week, I'm totally serious, with no hesitation at all. None. And you know me, so I, would, I wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. I love those tanks, they're beautiful, but I, I would take a really cool botanical-style natural aquarium with biofilms and, you know, turbid water and all that stuff over any of those types of tanks. It's just what I like. Tinted turbid water, sediment, biofilm, decomposing botanical materials, soil, a random scattering of branches covered in fungal growth. To me, it's freaking gorgeous beyond anything I've ever seen in any contest or anywhere, you know, uh, anywhere aquarium contests take place. It's unfiltered nature. Okay, I'm not mentioning this to brag about how, you know, our avant-garde love of dirty, chaotic-looking aquariums makes us cooler than the glass pipe and stupidly named aquascaping rock crowd or something like that, but, well, maybe. But anyway, I just want you to understand the degree to which I, myself and we at Tannin Aquatics love the concept of nature in its most compelling form and how strong we feel that we feel that as a global community of hobbyists, we need to look beyond what's regularly presented to us as a natural aquarium and really give this stuff some thought. And we should take some criticism when we present stupid ideas or incorrect ideas, and we should be willing to engage and listen. We can and should interpret natural aquatic features more literally in our aquariums. This is different than what we see a lot in the hobby, but it's really not all that radical. And not all of nature requires us to make extreme aesthetic preference shifts in order to love it. Well, maybe not all. A lot of it, though. Radical? Well, perhaps to some, but in reality, it's really not. It's simply different. And look, by the same token, I also understand that not every hobbyist wants to or can go the other extreme, trying to validate every twig, every rock, and every plant in a given habitat as if we're being scored by some higher power, a universal quality assurance team, which must certify that each and every rock and branch is indeed from the Rio Manacaparu, for example, or if your work is just some sort of travesty. I mean, that's the other extreme. I get it. It's a contest situation, but that's not going to help the hobby grow. At the end of the day, we should all do what we love. That's a given. We should also stop convincing ourselves that what we do is the only way to achieve a successful, beautiful aquarium. There is much more we can learn from each other and much more we can learn from nature, which can help us create more successful aquariums. 
And sometimes that involves experiments that open you up to criticism. Sometimes it involves you criticizing other people for not being so open-minded. But we also need to be open-minded to new ideas. We need to be able to get out of our own way from time to time and look at other ideas and judge them on their merit, not just based on who's presenting them or them being from different uh, camps that then we're in or different from what we know and are comfortable with. I hardly see any controversy in that. Stay bold. Stay disciplined. Stay diligent. Stay creative. Stay thoughtful. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Bellman from Tent and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tent. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for yet another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, of all the botanical materials that we employ in our aquariums, none are more common, well-studied, or simply ubiquitous in aquatic habitats than leaves. Yeah, leaves. In nature, leaf litter zones comprise one of the richest and most diverse biotopes in the tropical aquatic ecosystem, yet they're seldom replicated in the aquarium. Now, more so than in years past, but I would not exactly call, you know, aquariums configured to replicate these habitats common. And I wonder why this is. I think it's been due in a large part due to a lack of real understanding about what this habitat is all about, not to mention the understanding of the practicality of creating and managing one in the aquarium. And it's important to understand that a leaf litter bed in nature, or the aquarium for that matter, is a rich ecosystem, uh, providing food and shelter to a really diverse community of organisms ranging from fungi to bacterial biofilms. And of course, fishes and invertebrates, which live amongst and feed directly upon the fungi and decomposing leaves and botanical materials, contribute to the breakdown of these materials as well. Aquatic fungi can break down the leaf matrix and make the energy available to feeding animals in these habitats. That's a key takeaway here. And I found a little gem in my research on the leaf litter beds that I think is really interesting. I'll just read it to you. There's evidence that detritivores selectively feed on conditioned leaves, i.e. those previously colonized by fungi. Fungi can alter the food quality and palatability of leaf detritus, affecting shredder, that's the fishes that, that shred them up and invertebrates that shred them up, affecting shredder growth rates. Animals that feed on a diet rich in fungi have higher growth rates and fecundity than those fed on poorly colonized leaves. Some shredders prefer to feed on leaves that are colonized by fungi, whereas others consume fungal mycelium, that's the little fibers, selectively. Now, again, conditioned leaves in this context are those which have been previously colonized by fungi. They make the energy within the leaves and botanicals more available to higher organisms like fishes and invertebrates. Now, it's easy to get scared by this stuff, and surprisingly, it's even easier to exploit it as a food source for your animals. This is a huge point that I can't emphasize enough. Uh, another interesting excerpt that I found about leaf litter communities, in particular Amazonian blackwater leaf litter communities, uh, this is from biologist Peter Allen Henderson, somebody we've quoted before. I found a few of his papers in Google Scholar, and they're always interesting. Provide some context for those of us considering replicating these types of communities in our aquariums. And he says, uh, and I quote, Life within a litter is not a crowded, chaotic scramble for space and food. Each species occupies a subregion defined by physical variables such as flow and oxygen content, water depth, litter depth, and particle size. This subtle division of space is the key to understanding the maintenance of diversity. With subdivision of time is also evident with, for example, 
gynatoids, knife fishes, hunting by night and cichlids hunting by day, this is only possible when each species has its space within which to hide. In other words, leaf litter beds facilitate and accommodate diverse populations of fishes, and we should consider this when creating and stocking our botanical-style aquarium systems with leaf litter. Now, leaf litter beds are interesting. Some of them form in uh, stream structures that are called meanders by ecologists, which is basically a stream structure that forms when moving water in a stream erodes the outer banks and widens its valley, uh, and the inner part of the river has less energy and deposits silt, or in our instances, leaf, on the bottom. Uh, there's a whole fascinating science to river and stream structure, and there are so many implications for understanding how these structures and mechanisms affect fish populations, occurrence, behavior, and ecology. It's just really worth studying and, uh, for aquarium interpretation. So I recommend doing some research on that stuff. Now, again, did you just get the part where I mentioned that lower energy parts of the water courses tend to accumulate leaves and sediments and stuff? It's logical, right? And it's also interesting because, as we know, Fishes and their food items tend to aggregate in these areas, and embracing the theme of a leaf litter or botanical bed, or even just the way you place wood, in the context of stream structure in the aquarium is kind of cool, and it could add some interesting insights into the way we do this. Now, incorporating leaf litter in our aquariums opens up all sorts of possibilities for interesting experiments, ranging from, you know, community displays to fry rearing systems to specialized species aquariums. You can go with just a few leaves in your tank or really go crazy with a deep bed of leaf litter in your tank. It's wide open for experimentation. So how do you create one? Well, this is like a no-brainer, right? It's not particularly complicated. Simply add a selection of the prepared leaves of your choice to your aquarium. Hello. I mean, really easy. In a brand new tank without fishes, you can simply add as many as you want all at once. In an established populated tank, you should build that depth and quantity gradually over the course of several weeks, monitoring the environment, you know, and the, and the impacts to it regularly. So you gauge for yourself any issues which might arise along the way. Again, common sense, right? So how many leaves, what kind and how often to add them is a topic open for discussion and debate, really. It's something we could all talk about. Now, I periodically ponder and discuss the idea of creating a really deep leaf litter bed in aquariums to more accurately represent some of the leaf litter beds that you find in like South America, Asia, or Africa, or whatever. And by deep, I'm talking six inches to 12 inches. That's about 15 and a quarter to about 30 and a half centimeters. Yeah, there are deeper leaf litter beds in these areas, like several feet or meters in depth. However, for practical aquarium display purposes, I think the rational upper limit is more likely the 12 inch and up range. That's about 30 centimeters, 30 and a half centimeters. Or is it? Now, there certainly is a difference between the theoretical and the practical, but I can't help but think that there is something beneficial about a deep bed of leaf litter. Perhaps stuff we haven't even imagined because we're too busy talking about all the possible downsides of the idea. And it's intriguing for me to contemplate how to make this kind of an idea work. I mean, it isn't really all that much different than what many of us do now. The main difference being that we'd use more of the same materials. I don't think that there really is a difference, really. And in researching the idea of coming up with a deep bed of leaf litter, I thought about what would be the main considerations when attempting to create one in an aquarium. I guess the ratio of leaves to water in a given aquarium can be quite significant. I mean, what size aquarium do you go with? I'm curious about the impact on the water quality and oxygen levels with that much decomposing materials in play. On the other hand, starting from scratch with a new system and cycling it with bacterial products like, you know, culture or some of the other ones available and even seeded substrate materials would probably at least kickstart the biological filtration before fishes ever even enter the equation. You get a sort of a, a thriving little ecosystem before the fishes arrive. And although 
large masses of leaves can be considered bioload, I can't help but wonder if it would also function as a sort of a nutrient processing facility, sort of the way live rock does in a reef tank. I mean, with that much media surface area, could this be the case, like denitrification by deep leaf litter bed? Maybe? I think so. I think it's something to look at. Now, the other thing, too, is that leaves should continuously be replaced. you got to view them as consumables, which they are. And by adding new leaves and to existing, you know, to the existing setup as the existing ones decompose, you're not only keeping some form of environmental stability, you're replicating the very processes which nature, uh, which occur in nature where, you know, leaves are constantly falling from the trees and finding their ways into waterways. And we keep coming back to that idea that leaf litter beds can function in a similar manner as they do in nature, providing supplemental food for the fishes which reside in their tanks. This is really a significant thing. I've seen all sorts of fishes spend large amounts of time during the day picking at leaf litter and the surfaces of decomposing botanicals in these kind of leaf litter beds and maintaining girth during periods of time when I've traveled or whatnot, which led me to believe that they're deriving at least part of their nutrition from the leaf litter botanical bed in the aquarium from whatever life forms they're finding down there. And it compelled me to create a series of, I admit, wildly successful leaf litter only tanks to test the validity of my hypotheses. And it worked. It worked really well. In the aquarium, much like in the natural habitat, the layer of decomposing leaves and botanical matter colonized by so many organisms, ranging from bacteria to macroinvertebrates to insects, is a prime spot for fishes. Now, again, like in nature, the most common fishes associated with leaf litter beds are kerosens, catfishes, and electric knife fishes, followed by our buddies the cichlids, like Epistogramma, Crincicla, Dicrosis, Mesonota, etc. Some species of rivulus killifish are commonly associated with leaf litter beds as well, even though they're primarily top-dwelling fishes. I thought that was kind of interesting. And of course, fishes and other organisms, you know, and their processes create not only the basis of a food web, but the development of an entire community of codependent organisms which work together to process nutrients and support life forms all along the chain. It's really interesting. When we encourage rather than remove these organisms as they appear, we're helping perpetuate these processes. I can't stress how important it is to let these organisms multiply. We need to rethink our relationship with leaf litter, detritus, decomposing materials, and sediments in our tanks. Yes, I'm asking you not only to leave them be, but to encourage their accumulation, to foster the development and the prosperity of the organisms which work them. Once again, I have to at least ask the rather long question. Are these things, you know, detritus and decomposing leaves, really problematic for a well-managed aquarium, optimized to take advantage of their presence, or do they constitute an essential component of a closed aquatic ecosystem? One which can actually provide some benefits, uh, nutrition uh, for the fishes and life forms which support them. Nutrition is just one of them. There's also, again, potential gross nutrient export. Many of us have already made that sort of mental shift which accepts the transient, subtle beauty of decomposing botanical materials and leaves and tinted water and biofilms and all this stuff. So it goes without saying that taking it a little further and allowing these materials to completely break down to serve as the substrate for aquatic ecodiversity is simply the next iteration in the management of botanical-style aquariums. Don't be afraid. Open up your mind. Study what's happening instead of just be afraid to even try Draw parallels to the natural aquatic ecosystems of the world. Look at this evolution process with wonder, with awe, and with courage, and think about it. Stay inquisitive. Stay thoughtful. Stay open-minded. Stay brave. 
and always stay wet. Till next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.